Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing Trevor Harris's frustration with the CFL's concussion spotter. Who is the frontrunner for the Most Outstanding Player Award, Nathan Rourke or Zach Kolaris? Saskatchewan struggling to get running back Jamal Morrow involved. The Atlanta Falcons releasing Canadian receiver Braden Lenius. The Montreal Alouettes owner Gary Sturd's belief that his team will beat the undefeated Blue Bombers. But first. Bolivar Mitchell was frustrated after Calgary's 35-28 loss to Winnipeg in Week 8, acknowledging that the Blue Bombers are the better team right now. While disappointed with the present, Mitchell also reminded the media that it's impossible to win a CFL championship during the summertime, saying, quote, you don't win the Grey Cup right now. Y'all can crown them all right now if you want to, but they aren't going to win the Grey Cup today. I've beat that team a thousand times. I am not worried about it. I will see them in the playoffs. Close quote. Oh my goodness. Should Mitchell be worried about Winnipeg following a second straight loss to the blue and gold? I'm not sure that Mitchell should be worried because frankly, the Stampeders were very competitive In both games, one could argue that they were the better team at IG Field. Kamar Jordan should have caught that game-tying touchdown pass late. Instead, it becomes a game-sealing interception for the Blue Bombers to put that game away. Winnipeg was the better team at McMahon Stadium. I don't think you could argue opposite. But again, the Stampeders have played well against this Blue Bombers team. They're not winning in a blowout fashion. The Stamps were in both games But also, I think Bo is absolutely right. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers are the better team at the moment. There are a reason. There's a reason, I should say, that they are 8-0 and for the first time since 1960. And they have won, I looked it up yesterday, boys, dating back to last season, they have won 16 meaningful regular season games in a row, 18 meaningful games in a row, if you include the playoffs. So I think Mitchell is right here. Right, the whoever's the best team in July and August does not matter. It's all about November. But the Stampeders are going to have to find a way to add a little bit of an extra gear to their game if they want to go into IG Field for that West Final. Because let's be honest, that's what it looks like is going to happen. Bombers could be hosting the West Final again this year and come up with a win to get them to the Great Cup. You're absolutely right, Hodge. The Stampeders have been very close in both of their matchups with the Bombers. But Bo Levi Mitchell's standing up here saying, I've beat this team a thousand times. When was the last time that they beat the Bombers in a game that mattered? It's been a couple seasons now, right? It's what have you done for me lately in pro football? And right now, Bo Levi Mitchell and the Calgary Stampeders haven't been able to get over the top against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And in their defense, very few teams have because they've been as dominant as you said. But if you're going to come out with this much bravado, then you've got to back it up. And right now, he hasn't been able to do that in these key matchups with Winnipeg. And he got outplayed by Zach Kalaros in that matchup. 
if Kadeem Carey and that offensive line didn't have the performance that they had, and it was just all on Bo Levi Mitchell's shoulders, we might be having a very different conversation about the outcome of that game. Bo Levi Mitchell doing his best Dennis Green impression. Y'all can crown him <laughs> if you want to, that he used to do with the Minnesota Vikings way back in the day. And I think that didn't necessarily get enough play because it shows that Mitchell in my mind, is frustrated without getting wins against the Blue Bombers. And JC, you made an excellent point there. It's been a while since Mitchell beat the Blue Bombers in a meaningful game, and he has yet to beat this version, the two-time defending Grey Cup champion version of the Blue Bombers. Now, they obviously needed to make their way to that level in terms of winning back-to-back CFL titles, but it's a different type of team, this Blue Bombers team, with Zach Hilaris at quarterback making plays in critical situations to win games. I think the team does that as a whole. That's what Michael Shea brings to the table as the head coach is that focus, attention to detail. And I hate saying cliches, but playing a full 60 minutes is what that team does. They never feel like they're out of the game. And especially Calaris, you know, I was talking to some people around the league and they said he's so good now in second and long situations. So, for example, in that Calgary game, there's spots where you think you're getting that Blue Bombers offense off the field and Calaris makes a big completion to keep Winnipeg on the field and then ultimately obviously a lot of times leading the point. So you can see Mitchell's frustration here. We need to see this version of the Stampeders be able to beat this version of the Blue Bombers. And yes, they're close. I think those two teams right now are on a tier of their own in terms of the best in the CFL. Winnipeg is above everybody else, clearly. But we got to remember, it was a couple close games. Hodge, you alluded to it, the one at IG Field. Calgary played very well and could have come out with a victory there. Same thing at McMahon Stadium. They were leading late in that ball game, but the Bombers made the plays ultimately at the end of the game. It'll be interesting to see how Mitchell gets back at these guys in the playoffs because, I mean, he's factually incorrect in saying that he's beat the Bombers a thousand times because he hasn't even played them that many times. <laughs> I, would, I would imagine that some of Bo's frustration was also due to the fact that he did not throw a touchdown pass this past week. And Zach Kalaris at McMahon Stadium through four. When was the last time Bo Levi Mitchell threw four touchdown passes at McMahon Stadium? It's probably been a long time. I know that that was uh, the first time that Zach Kolaris had thrown four touchdown passes in a game as a member of the Blue Bombers. The other thing I'll say is Bo actually, you know, if you look back at 2013, 2014, he might've beat the Bombers a thousand times, but let's be honest, Mitchell's alma mater of Eastern Washington might have been able to beat the Blue Peg Blue Bombers back in 2013 to 2014. That team was so atrocious. <laughs> Obviously, things have done a complete 180 now. The Bombers are the class of the league, and Bo's going to have to pull up his socks if he wants to beat that team later this year. Because guess what? They've already lost the season series. There's only one meeting left. Bombers off to a 2-0 start there. Cody Fajardo was realistic following his team's third straight loss, saying, quote, we're a middle-of-the-pack team that needs to figure it out, close quote. The Riders are on a bye this week, which they really need. But do you think they can make noise in the West Division when they return to the field? It all depends on the health of this team, in my mind, because entering the season, I really liked multiple elements of this roster. I thought they had depth in the receiving core. We saw what that defensive line was able to do early in the season, but they've just been ravaged by injuries across the board. They're really struggling to stay healthy. 
this bye week's going to help, but there's a number of key players that are on the shelf that's going to extend far past this bye week. Uh, guys like AC Langer, who just recently went on the six game in- injured list, who are impact players. Until you start to get all these guys back, I think it's rough slugging for the Raggers. I really do, because they are so injury hampered. Uh, they're getting a bunch of guys in there with with very little experience, uh, missing key players on all position groups virtually, and adding the fact that Cody Fajardo is still battling that knee injury. Right now, it's looking rough for them because of how talented the West Division is. Edmonton is gigging healthier and will soon be nipping at their heels for the crossover spot. Really, they need uh, they need the doctors to step up before anybody else if they want to stay competitive. Or the offensive line project protect Cody Fajardo better and then just try to avoid the injury bug. But it's something that happens to all teams, right? Injuries are just part of the marathon that is the CFL season, in my mind, the Rough Riders got to be very careful here because they're trending downwards while the Elks are trending upwards. And if you look at the Rough Riders' four and one start, they didn't play the class of the league, obviously, in any of their four wins there. They have yet to still play Winnipeg or Calgary. BC and Nathan Rourke come in there and roll up 28 unanswered to win going away 32 17 last week before the Riders go on their bye week. And largely, you wonder, can this Riders team actually compete with the class of the West Division that is likely ultimately going to produce a Grey Cup champion? We've seen some of those middling teams from the East Division, probably most recently the Ottawa Red Blacks, be able to upset the Calgary Stampeders, who was so dominant that season in the CFL. But realistically, for the Riders to even get to the Grey Cup game, they're going to have to beat two of these West Division teams to get there unless they end up being in that crossover. And we've never had a crossover team make it to the Grey Cup. So as much as people say, well, it might be an easier route to go east, nobody's ever done it. So I think the riders here need to be able to get healthy, but they also must do a better job, in my mind, of dealing with adversity. Some people out there have thrown around the word and feel like the riders weren't very poised, especially in that loss to BC. And I don't think it necessarily has to do with poise, but they seem to be very poor at dealing with the situations when games are going against them. It's pro football. The other guys get paid too. You're going to have to deal with those situations. I think the riders really need to learn to be able to punch back instead of punching down on teams that are below them that they've gotten their four wins against. Maybe don't use the word punch when it comes to the riders because they have had a lot of issues with supplemental discipline, but I get what you're saying, Doug. I get what you're saying. To me, this team is not doing nearly enough to incorporate Jamal Morrow in the offense. Jamal Morrow, I think, has been their best offensive weapon. It has not been Cody Fajardo. It has not been Duke Williams, who, let's just be honest, is not earning his paychecks right now in the city of Regina. Has he been bad? No, but he's getting paid to be an elite player in that offense, one of the top offensive weapons in the league, and he's not on that list right now. Right. He, he is nowhere near uh, a Malik Henry, uh, a Dalton Schoen, guys who before this season were not household names. He is getting outperformed by those players. And Shaq Evans, of course, is hurt now, but still wasn't putting up the all-star numbers he put up in 2019 prior to that injury taking place. So I know Craig Dickinson spoke to the media, talked about how they're going to review everything. To me, I think the only route to success 
for this team is going to be utilizing a lot more of Jamal Morrow and a lot more of Frankie Hickson because they've got two dynamic running backs who are excellent receivers out of the backfield. To me, that's what you have to base your offense around because you've mentioned the offensive line dunk. If your plan for the rest of the year is to take Cody Fajardo and that banged up knee that's forced to become more of a pocket passer and do seven-step drops behind the Ty Rogers. You can, you can kiss you can kiss those great cup hopes goodbye. You have to change that offense over the bye week, incorporate more of the short game, run the ball a lot more. That's going to take some of that pressure off of that young offensive line. You, you're you absolutely correct on that, Hodge. Nate Rogers, one of the most questionable roster decisions anywhere in the CFL right now is the decision to start Nate Rogers, an American at right tackle over Canadian Jamal Campbell. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. And I'm not saying Jamal Campbell is an all-star caliber right tackle, a, a game changer, as it were. But Nate Rogers has been actively bad in several games he's played this season, and he's actively undisciplined. He's a guy who's going to go out there and get a misconduct penalty a game. And to me, Jamal Morrow, or, or Jamal Campbell, sorry, can go out there and be far more consistent for you as a pass protector. Maybe he's not as grueling in the run game, but I don't think he hurts you there as well. There is no logical reason for me why you would start Rodgers over Campbell right now, yet the Riders continue to do it, and he continues to perform poorly. What I can't understand, guys, is how the Riders do not want to get the football more in who I believe is their best offensive playmaker's hands, and that would be Ken Schaefer-Baker. has nothing to do with the fact that he went to the University of Guelph. That dude is an absolute playmaker, and I'm with you on Jamal Morrow. The success the Riders are going to have in the second half, if they do have success, is going to largely ride on them committing more to the run game. We saw it in that win over the Ottawa Red Blacks, which was – one of their most decisive of the season. Arguably, they ran the rock really well with Morrow and Frankie Hickson. And when Keen Schaefer-Baker is catching passes for this team, especially down the field, but he can make those explosive plays with his feet as well, that's when the Riders' offense, in my mind, has been at its best the last couple of years. That dude needs to see double-digit targets per game. Now, you're obviously not going to throw the ball his way if he's double covered or if the safety's over the top. You don't want to force it in there, but you can scheme up ways, and I'm sure Jason Moss can do it with his creative offensive mind to get Schaefer Baker the ball more because for my money, he's the best receiver on that team. And yes, I know Duke Williams is there earning $250,000, but Hodge, you made a great point. He's nowhere close to actually earning that money with his production, and especially some of his antics have actually cost this team. So I would like to see them use Schaefer Baker much more, get him involved, put the ball in his hands because that offense is going along much better and is more productive when he's involved. Trevor Harris told Montreal reporters uh, Herb Zerkowski this week that the concussion spotter's decision to pull him from the final play of Montreal's 24 to seven week eight loss to Hamilton was quote, pretty messed up close quote did the spotter make the correct decision 
in this instance where the league and the players association has talked about player safety being paramount, I believe the concussion spotter made the right decision. Harris was down on the ground for a little longer than you would have liked to have seen. And if we're going to talk about player safety, the league needs to be about it. So I can understand how Harris feels like it was messed up. And I felt like TSN analyst, Matt Dunnigan made a great point that if Harris would have popped to his feet, He's not coming out of the game, but there's multiple things going on in that situation. I mean, Harris is maybe thinking, oh, if I stay down for a little bit, do I get a flag for unnecessary roughness in that instance? Because some people felt like the hit from Stavros Katsantonis was close to the head or actually helmet to helmet. So that was one of the things at play in my mind. But Dunnigan made a great point. You want to stay in the game? You get hit like that and pop up. And Dunnigan can say that because he's done it multiple times, which is why I want to refer to Dunnigan. But I actually do believe the correct decision was made if player safety is going to be paramount in the league. Yeah, to me, I, with all due respect to Trevor Harris, I don't think he has a leg to stand on here. Players are not in charge of their own safety, right? There, there's a reason for it. They, they will always be biased in that situation. Every player wants to play. Every player will have an unrealistic expectation of what they can do safely on the field. And by the way, the hit from Katzentonis did draw a 15-yard flag. It was penalized on the field for being too high. And so absolutely, the right call was made. I appreciate that Trevor Harris is frustrated about it, but his frustration does not mean that the officials made a mistake in the spotter's booth. This was the correct decision. They had to bring him out of the game, not for any other reason than his safety. Because at the end of the day, again, players are never in that moment when emotions and adrenaline are running high, they're never going to make the best decision for their own health. That's the spotter's job. And they did it correctly. This isn't going to be a very interesting segment because I agree with both of you once again. <laughs> um, ultimately, I don't think it was a hit to the head like Trevor Harris said it wasn't. Like he didn't suffer a concussion on the play. He was very fortunate that it wasn't a hit to the head. If you look at that hit back in slow motion, it seems like he got most of it sort of in the upper back area. And then the helmets, you know, almost kissed just on the back there. Uh, no real blow was delivered. But if you're making that split se second decision as the concussion spotter, it certainly looks like the blow was to the head and neck area on the first watch. And you've got a quarterback who's down on the ground for a considerable amount of time in pain, to me, that's an automatic call every time to get him off the field. It doesn't matter the situation. You have to make that decision. And just like you mentioned, Duncan, Matt Dunnigan said, right, if it's not a serious injury, then you've got to hop up. You've got to get up. And if you're going to stay down, then you know the consequence of that is the fact that you're going to get pulled off the field and you should be pulled off the field if you're injured like that. So either you can play or you can't, there's no in between. You don't get to have both sides of it. You don't get to milk it and then get back on the field. If you're going to milk it, you have to accept the consequence of stepping off the field as well. And one, one quick point I want to throw in. Let's also remember there's precedent for this happening to a franchise quarterback with the game on the line. Zach Kolaris got pulled out of Winnipeg's week one game against the Ottawa Red Blacks, leading Drew Brown to come on for the game uh, winning field goal drive. So this has even happened to other franchise quarterbacks this season. And I frankly, I hope it continues to happen because again, player safety is of huge importance.
I'll disagree with you, JC. I don't think that segment was boring because there was some great <laughs> context. <laughs> Three Down Nation contributors selected award winners following the first third of the CFL season, picking BC Lions quarterback Nathan Rourke to win the Most Outstanding Player Award over Winnipeg Blue Bombers pivot Zach Kolaris. Kolaris threw four touchdown passes in an impressive win at McMahon Stadium after those were posted on the site. Who should win the MOP based on their resume of work so far this season? So I've sung Kolaris' praise a lot on this episode of the show, and I think that his four-touchdown performance in Calgary was, was somewhat of a signature game, right? If, if come to the end of the season, you're looking back at who you're going to cast your vote for, that win, I think, could help sway some of the, I believe it's 50 people who cast ballots for this award come the end of the year. That being said, right now it's it's Nathan Rourke. It's Nathan Rourke. I don't think you can make a good argument to the to the other side. This is not an award that simply goes to the starting quarterback of the best team in the league. This is an award that goes to the player who has put together the most outstanding season. Nathan Rourke. He's only a six or it's only six games into his season, right? Only a third of the way in. Kolaris has played eight games. He's almost halfway. But Rourke is on pace for forty-eight touchdown passes. And 12 rushing touchdowns. If a quarterback attributes 60 touchdowns over the course of a season, they are the MOP. I don't care what anybody says. Those are 1990 Doug Flutie-like numbers. Those are 1990 you know, Kent Austin-type numbers. We haven't seen numbers like that in the CFL for a long time. If he throws 48 touchdown passes or anywhere close to that, I would happily cast my ballot for Nathan Rourke. And if anybody wants to argue the team aspect – well, let's take a look at how the BC Lions looked with Michael Riley under center in 2021 and how they look now with Nathan Rourke under center with what is almost an unchanged offense around him. It's not like that team went out and signed a new running back, five new receivers, a new offensive line. Nathan Rourke is essentially surrounded by 11 unchanged starters, and that offense has gone from pathetic to literally the most exciting offense in the league to watch. So for me, it's an easy decision at this point, despite Kolaris's impressive performance at McMahon, it's Nathan Rourke. Because we're so early in this season, I am willing to hear arguments in favor of Zach Kolaris because he is such a tremendous player. And I do think he's such a key part of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers team success this season, especially given the fact that the running game that they have traditionally relied so much upon has not been as successful thus far this season. But uh, there was a, a, one of our colleagues in the media, Danny Austin uh, from Calgary, put out a tweet after that game saying, there's no question, it has to be Zach Caleros who's the MOP. There is no other candidate who is worthy of it because his team's 8-0. Eight, eight that is absolutely Ludicrous. If you look at the statistical numbers, Zach Caleros and Nathan Rourke are virtually identical in every category except completion percentage, where Nathan Rourke is about nine percentage points higher than Zach Caleros. They're virtually virtually identical everywhere else, except for the fact that Zach Caleros has played two more games than Nathan Rourke has. Two more games, two full 60-minute football games where he could have accrued massive stats. No, Nathan Rourke is putting up such numbers that he is able to keep pace with someone who has played 120 more minutes of football than he has. That's remarkable. The numbers at the end of the season, we'll see where they end up. 
Right now, it's an incredible pace that he's setting, and there hasn't been a stinker performance among them. Yes, there have been some rougher spots, some interceptions that maybe he'd want back at times. You know, two weeks ago, he threw a bad pick late in the game that he probably wants back. But all in all, every single performance has been strong. We're forgetting the fact that Zach Caleros just two weeks ago completed only seven passes in a game. He was actively bad in a contest where they barely won, right? That is, to me, indicative of the fact that Nathan Rourke has been much more consistent, albeit with a slightly smaller sample size, than Zach Caleros has. And right now, anyone who's arguing in favor of Caleros is simply looking at it with these rose-colored glasses based on how successful Winnipeg has been as a team. The one part that needs to be touched on, though, is the non-statistical element and the leadership that Kolaris has brought to that Winnipeg Blue Bombers team, and I think needs to factor into this as well. I think that goes into being one of the most outstanding players if you raise the level of everyone around you. And yes, he has a stout defense that is statistically the best in the league, and they do a great job with Michael Shea leading the way in terms of winning the field position battle week in and week out. They're never really backed up against their own goalpost. But Calaris has been so great for this team in terms of the leadership, the things that we don't see. And a lot of it is cliche. You know, I'm not going to say he's first in and last out in terms of studying film and being there during the week, but just the respect that he commands from that group has completely transformed this team. And in my mind was the main sort of cherry on top, for lack of a better phrase, to take this team to two Grey Cup titles, to battle through some of the adversity, to be down in the last Grey Cup against Hamilton and come back and win, right? They almost lost it, Jeremiah Masoli to Jalen Ackland, but that pass gets tipped away. Who was it that knocked it away, Hodge? In the Grey Cup, that I believe was Nick Taylor. Taylor knocks the ball away and they go on to win, but there are critical plays made there by Calaris and he bounces back from throwing too big. Now we're talking about 2022, obviously. And I do agree with Hodge's point that if Rourke puts up 60 touchdowns, it's going to be hard for the traditional media people to vote for anyone else other than Rourke because they're going to look at the statistics. The difficult part though is guys, the Blue Bombers don't need Calaris to throw for four touchdowns and three or 400 yards per game to win football games. And they're going to have the West Division wrapped up what looks like early again this year. I think that was one of the underrated storylines going into that week eight matchup with Calgary at McMahon Stadium is essentially that was a major separator in terms of the Stamps chances to potentially get top spot in the West. And really the only other team now would be BC and that's why Rourke is in this conversation so from a statistical perspective I think it's going to be really difficult for Claros to compete because the Bombers are going to be home and cooled out and they don't need him to throw and have these crazy numbers for them to be in the game BC doesn't necessarily need it but I think it certainly helped them get out to that record and we saw Rourke go into a hostile environment roll off 28 unanswered points to come back from 17-4 that could be one of his signature performances if he does go on to win MLP. So I don't think it's clear cut. My vote through this point in the season would go to Rourke because I think he has been the most outstanding. If the name of this award was most valuable player or the designation for it was MVP, then in my mind, no doubt it's Caleros. But there's a big distinction there in terms of the verbiage 
for the award. And I think it's going to be something that's very close all season long, especially if the Blue Bombers continue to stack up wins like they have the last couple of seasons. Yeah, to, to me, there's no question. It's it's Nathan Burke. And by the way, with the standings, you touched on Dunk. The Bombers and Lions do play twice more, but it's not until the last three weeks of the season. So if BC is going to catch Winnipeg for first in the West, they're going to have to be within punching distance in week 19. Easier said than done. Montreal Alouette's owner, Gary Stern, believes his team will beat the undefeated Winnipeg Blue Bombers on Thursday. Can the Owls get it done? Look, anything can happen in any football game. Uh, we've been shocked before. I think it's highly unlikely that the Alouettes beat the Winnipeg Blue Bombers this week. And I think it becomes even unlikelier when their owner goes out there and makes assertions of this uh, of this nature. Uh, Gary Stern, to me, uh, has a significant problem with uh, making or cash or writing checks uh, that his team can't cash, as it were. Uh, right now, they're a struggling franchise, but he seems to think they're still gonna go 18 and 0, despite the fact that they've already lost a bunch of games. Right? It's uh, he needs to take a step back in my mind, reevaluate the way he is uh, operating on social media. I know it is fun to be able to engage fans in that way and people like it Uh, but to me he comes off as unprofessional a bunch he comes off as uh, uh, uninformed at times and whiny other times and right now it's just not a good look for an organization that's struggling from top to bottom with a bunch of issues that has created controversy with their coaching change for less than uh, perfect reasons and they can't afford to have any more heat on their back caused by the guy who's simply there to provide financial stability. Uh, keep it to the monetary aspect, Gary Stern. Casey, I thought you were going to say he shouldn't be writing tweets that people have a hard time understanding because <laughs> his grammar is so poor. <laughs> and that's probably funny for mr hodge coming from me who has helped me out with my grammar through the years i think first of all (laughs) gary stern needs to hire somebody to run his twitter account and i think he tweeted something to the effect of he's the only one that listens to himself well that's not a good thing but he needs someone to listen to him to make his tweets concise and then actually tell him whether or not it should go out from his account or not so that's first and foremost jc i understand what you're saying in terms of stern sticking to the monetary aspects of the team when you're the owner ultimately you can say anything that you want but i would agree in that sense and i'm not there all the time in montreal and i believe mr stern makes his year-round home let's call it in ontario but i would wonder out loud if mr stern actually knows what's going on with his football team from a day-to-day perspective Because for him to be out here defending Danny Machocha for firing Kahari Jones, who was in the conversation for coach of the year. Wait, did he win coach? No, he didn't. He was in in coach of the year conversation in 2019 for getting the Alouettes in the playoffs. Ultimately, I believe it was Orlando Steinauer who won it with that 15-3 and record with the Ticats. But he needs to understand what's going on with this football team before he starts making these grandiose, grandiose statements. Because if you're the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, 
this is a potential prime letdown spot on the schedule. A short week where you're traveling again, you're banged up. Yes, Jackson Jeffcoat's going to be back in the lineup. And they've shown they can rise to the occasion in these situations. You know, sometimes the Montreal flu might come up and bite you. But then you look at something like Mr. Stern all but guaranteeing a win. I think he is guaranteeing a win, right? He believes his team can win. I understand it. You're the owner. But when you see that and you're the Blue Bombers, that gives you that perhaps little extra juice that you need to go in there and show him up and let him know about it. So I think he's creating more problems for his team. Do we love it as a website at 3 that he'll run his mouth seemingly at will and doesn't have a stopper, let's say, or doesn't have the awareness <laughs> to understand that maybe he shouldn't be tweeting some of the stuff he is? Yes, it's great. And we want to see more of this in the league. But I think ultimately, when you look at it from an analysis perspective, it's hurting his team. And I think he needs to understand what actually is going on with his franchise before he tweets out stuff like this. Yeah, the tweet in which he he stated that he he believed his team would win is he 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 also put uh, something to the effect of, you know, our our coaches are are installing great systems. And I remember reading that thinking like, wow, I, I had no idea that Gary was in the film room. Like, like man, he's, <laughs> he's breaking down the chalkboard and everything. Okay, cool. Um, but, you know, on a serious note, I'll say this. Winnipeg has played uh, three games over a very short period of time. They got a short week. They were just in Calgary. Four days of rest. Now they're flying to Montreal. I think Winnipeg traditionally has done a very good job of avoiding the Montreal flu. I don't think we'll see guys out partying late the night before the game. But Dunk mentioned it. This is the perfect time after an emotional win over the Stampeders. This is the time. Fourth game in 19 days, guys. Hard to do. They haven't had a bye. They're the only team in the CFL that hasn't had a bye yet. This would be the time for a letdown. Do I think the Bombers will let down? No. And I say that because I, I picked them to lose in Edmonton and they won despite completing seven passes. But I do think it's possible that we see the Montreal Oats win on Thursday. Am I picking them? Absolutely not. Is it possible? As JC said, it's the CFL. Anything is possible. Last week, we discussed CFL scheduling after the Lions and Raggers posted strong ratings on Sunday. Thanks to your reporting, Dunk, we have fresh ratings from this past week to compare. The Ticats versus Owls game on Thursday drew an average audience of 354,000 people, while the Red Blacks Argos game on Sunday drew an average audience of 429,000. Does this mean the CFL should scrap Thursdays and move to Sundays in the summer? Not yet, but we have a little bigger of a sample size now, at least from the 2022 season. That's two times now where Sunday has beaten Thursday in terms of CFL game rating. So I think it needs to become more of a conversation in league meetings in the offseason with their television partner, TSN, because it makes a lot of sense. And we talked about it on the pod previously when it was, I believe, the Rough Riders and Argos that posted a big number. I think they went over 600,000 that week as well. There's only been... Four games that have gone over 600,000 this year. The Riders have been involved in all of them. But to the Sunday point, you know, I don't think you necessarily go that way yet. They've tried to make a big production out of Thursday night football, but it's clear that people are still, you know, going through their week and potentially enjoying the summer a little bit, where Sunday traditionally for a lot of people 
is a day of rest and relaxation, especially Sunday night is not traditionally a night where people are going out a lot. Thursday has kind of turned into that night, especially for a lot of young people. So yeah, it's one thing if the game is in your city and you're maybe going to go out to the game and make a night of it, but even still it's a quick turnaround if you're finished work for a lot of those nine to fivers to get to the game. And then you got to probably work the next day. I mean, some young people do it hungover, but I think for the vast majority, <laughs> it could be more beneficial for the CFL to have games on Sunday. We should note that it's back-to-back weeks where the CFL has posted its best average audience ratings overall for the entire week, week seven, and then week eight went up another notch in the Rough Riders BC Lions game, which was on Friday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time kickoff, drew the largest TV audience of the CFL season, just over 700,000 average viewers tuned in to watch that game. What potentially helped was the Blue Jays were playing on Apple TV, so you couldn't just flip on Sportsnet and watch the game. But also the late start time would have allowed people to transition over because usually the Jays are playing at 7 p.m. So as a positive overall for the league, and then also they had the biggest TV number for a non-Rough Riders game, which was that Blue Bombers win over the Stampeders, drawing just over 600,000. So a couple of real positives for the league and, Guys, you know that we're critical of the league and we tell it how it is, but these television numbers the last couple of weeks are trending upwards. That has to be positive for TSN, has to be positive for the league, you know, especially to do it on a long weekend where people might be out enjoying the weather and beautiful scenery and surroundings that we have in our country. Maybe think that, you know, a Canadian quarterback, Nathan Rourke, going into Face the Rough Riders became appointment viewing for people. 700,000 viewers is impressive on a summer Friday night. So think in terms of the television ratings, it's trending upwards. And ideally from the league and TSN's perspective, they're going to want this positive momentum to continue throughout the season. Yeah, to me, I mean, these numbers, we also have to say, do not include any viewership from RDS, TSN's French language affiliate, which obviously would have attributed more on Thursday with the Montreal Alouettes playing. Uh, Mark Fulton, for example, on his Twitter account, breaks down all the viewership by team. Montreal has the lowest rated viewership on TSN so far this year, but they have a French language affiliate, right, that many people in the province of Quebec would be watching. We don't have those numbers um, we don't have those. Well, real quickly, Hodge, the president, Mario Cicchini, tweeted out that they averaged around 200,000 viewers on RDS so far this season. Gotcha. So that's a significant number. If that's 200,000 is added to the TSN rating, then all of a sudden Thursday night blew Sunday out of the water, regardless of how these numbers initially looked. So to me, I am disappointed by the Sunday rating, to be quite frank. But then again, Toronto, Ottawa you know, looking at the standings is not a matchup that's going to attract average fans, right? It's, it's not a game like, you know, a marquee game, like, like, like Saskatchewan going into Edmonton or like this fantastic game that we got between Calgary and Winnipeg. It's not even the battle of Ontario, right? If you put Hamilton, Toronto on Sunday, it probably does very well. So I was let down by the Sunday rating, but I'll say this. I love the Thursday through Sunday one night or one game a night schedule. And if you're the CFL looking to potentially add that 10th team, which Randy Ambrosi recently guaranteed, despite the fact that as you guys are so well covered in Halifax, it's not anywhere close to happening at the moment. I think then you start to look at, okay, we have Thursday through Sunday each week. 
And then we pick one to double up, whether it's Friday night football, because that's historically been right our branding, or whether that's Saturday to try and maximize people in stadiums. I think you make it work because Friday, Saturday, viewership is going to be high no matter what. And I love the idea of spreading it out and having more attention on your product through the week. Because there are weeks we've seen before where it's doubleheader Friday, doubleheader Saturday, and all of a sudden you got five games out of the five week, days out of the week with no games. Not good, not a good thing for the league, in my opinion. Yeah, spreading it out has its merits. And I like the idea of exploring more Sunday games going forward. Like you said, a little bit disappointing this week. Uh, if you add in potentially what the Alouettes drew on RDS, then it becomes even more disappointing. Um, but again, these are not two uh, juggernaut teams, right? The, the only thing more disappointing than the viewership number on Sunday were the two teams playing it, right? So <laughs> um, Ouch. I, I'd like to see what the numbers would be like had that Riders lions game been on a Sunday, for example, what would that have done? Would it be an uptick compared to what we saw on a Saturday or would it be a downtick? I'd, I'd be intrigued to see what something like that would look like before we make any sort of decisions going forward. On that note, it's time for Hodges heritage moment on this day in 2001, Marv Levy was elected to the pro football hall of fame. Levy served as the head coach of the Montreal Alouettes for five seasons from 1973 to 1977, winning two great cups in three appearances. The Chicago native left to become the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, where he failed to make the playoffs over a five-year period. Levy then became the head coach of the Buffalo Bills in 1986, where he spent 12 seasons with the team, posting a 112-70 and regular season record and leading the team to four consecutive Super Bowls which unfortunately they famously lost four in a row. He is now one of two former coaches in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, pardon me, CFL head coaches in the Pro Football Hall of Fame alongside Bud Grant and was finally inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in 2021. Dunkster, you're from Southern Ontario. You're not far from Buffalo. What does the name Marv Levy mean to you? Cool, man. It takes you right back to those Super Bowls you mentioned. And even though they lost all four of those Super Bowls, it was still... A great run that I think was unprecedented. I don't think any other team in NFL history has gone to four straight Super Bowls. I'd have to double check my notes on that. But I think Marv Levy, even though he didn't win a title, is synonymous with one of the best eras of Buffalo Bills football in franchise history, along with Jim Kelly. All right, the three-minute drill. Let's keep it going. The Hamilton Tiger Cats brought back Canadian receiver Mike Jones after he was released by the Edmonton Elks. Is that a smart move for the Ticats? I think they needed some depth in that receiving core, particularly from the Canadian side of things. It's a good move. Coquitlam, BC native Javon Holland is the highest rated Canadian player in Madden 23 with a rating of 83 overall. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And I bet he's higher before the year is out. Holland is a playmaker on defense. I just want to know, did they animate in his BC Lions tattoo? Accurate to life? <laughs> Longtime CFL coach Jeff Reinbold has been hired as the director of player development at the University of Hawaii. Is that an ideal fit? It's so perfect. The man loves to surf and he loves that island. So I'm sure he'll have fun out there. With the Rainbow Warriors, or are they just the Warriors now? The Rainbow Warriors, I believe. Love it. The Calgary Stampeders missed out on a chance to become the first CFL team to record 400 home wins, giving the 
blue against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who also currently sit at 399. A chance to earn the title in Week 10. Will the Bombers be the first to reach that milestone? The Bombers are at 399 wins right now. I think they will be the first team to reach 400 wins when they host the Montreal Alouettes in Week 10. Matt Dunnigan told TSN 690 that he hasn't seen a difference in the Montreal Alouettes since Gahari Jones was fired, calling the coaching change a, quote, witch hunt, close quote. Is that fair? I think Dunnigan's a little bit inaccurate here because I'd be more inclined to believe that magic exists than that Kahari Jones had a legitimate <laughs> shot to finish out the season with the Montreal Alouettes. So he's not harsh enough with witch hunt there. The Atlanta Falcons released Canadian receiver Brent, uh, Braden Linnaeus. Uh, is there a chance we see him back with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in the near future? Well, if I knew the Near future, you mean the next month? I don't necessarily think so. Lenius actually got 60000 guaranteed money from the Falcons when he signed that contract, so he can be patient here. And he did work out for multiple NFL teams in the offseason, and he's tailored his body to the NFL game, so I imagine he's going to play it patient, at least for the month of August. The Montreal Alouettes signed former second-round CFL draft pick Pierre-Olivier Lestage. Is that a big deal? A huge deal. I think Lestage is going to be an all-star in this league. He's not starting on Thursday, but I've looked at Montreal's depth chart. He is dressing in a depth role. JC, you put Syracuse offensive lineman Matthew Bergeron at the top of your way too early 2023 CFL draft rankings. What makes him your top prospect to watch? Silky, silky, smooth feet. The guy is an athlete at left tackle at Syracuse. He started right from basically day one. He came out of a tiny, tiny Cégep in northern Quebec called Detford Mines. He went right from there, the first player to ever get an NCAA scholarship, to starting at a Division I program at Syracuse. He's been there the whole time, and he is athletic. Canadian offensive lineman Carter O'Donnell suffered a season-ending injury in training camp with the Indianapolis Colts. How awful is that? It's brutal for the kid because the Colts, and especially general manager Chris Ballard, really have liked O'Donnell. They've put time into developing him, and I felt like this year would have been a great chance for him to rest and perhaps even get on the field for the Colts. So hopefully he heals up and continues to get an opportunity in indianapolis and with that that does it for this edition of the three down nation podcast catch us next week great episode fellas be well until then